You've changed. Your exoplating, your ocular implant. They've taken you apart. And they've recreated you in their own image. Hair, garments, but at the core, you are still mine. Transfer complete. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast for two Trek fans. Step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, emulating the greatest villain of all in Star Trek, Stephen Weber. And we're here this week to draft Star Trek's ultimate baddies. Cam, I think we are using the term baddies because maybe it lends itself to kind of a wider spectrum of characters, you know, antagonists, unlikely kind of allies to a certain degree, like folks that I think like really deserve kind of a look versus, I don't know, us just saying the word villains. I thought we were doing bad boys so we could talk all about Tom Paris again. Uh, don't forget Chocote. <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, because there was definitely... When you look at the world of Star Trek villains, Star Trek, unlike some franchises, isn't necessarily as black and white with its villains. You have some that kind of occupy a, you know, kind of a gray territory role where when you, when you start considering villains, they sort of apply and maybe they're worth considering for drafting. So uh, I think this franchise more than maybe, you know, the Marvel franchise, the Star Wars franchise has opportunities for some characters that might not make a traditional villain list. Uh, going through this list, I, I kind of kept in my head, you know, like, ultimately, these people are guilty of something, though, that's our heroes would not do on the regular. Like, there, there's some villainy within them, but they are, you know, capable of nuance, capable of those shades of gray that you mentioned as well. So that's why I think this will kind of be a fun one. We're going to start, you know, like previous drafts we've done, you know, like uh, the best 47 recurring characters, I, I think... I don't know if there's necessarily 47 phenomenal baddies in all of Star Trek that would be worth this list. So I think we're going to go about 25. Does that make sense to you? Well, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of greats from that first season of Enterprise, but okay. I think we can go with 25. Well, I think you just want an excuse to fit in God from Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Well, that'll be my number one pick. Spoiler. Oh, uh, sorry about that. Uh, sir, uh, who, who should start? Do you want to go first or second? Uh, I want to go second, I think. Okay. And we should also say we'll use our veto powers that we've used in these previous drafts, but we'll wait until the end. I think we realized um, it's more fun to kind of shift things around once we get to the end, and we can ridicule each other for some of these picks uh, by then. But um, Cam, uh, stay with me. I, I, I hope you go with this. We're at number 25. I do want to have some representation from a new Star Trek here. No, it's not Bejazel. Uh, it, it's another baddie that starts with B. And Cam, that is Badgie from Star Trek Lower Decks, <laughs> who I know you weren't the biggest fan of Badgie. I liked Badgie quite a bit. I want to get a Badgie plush doll. He is the, like, if a hologram is prone to go bad, this is, he's got bad right in his name, you know? 
<laughs> I can't fault you for picking Badgie. Iconic design, and that's something I think a really strong villain, they stick in your mind just as a visual, and Badgie definitely has that going. He also uh, upsets your expectations, which I like in a character, in that when he's introduced, he's kind of goofy and cute, and then we get Homicidal Maniac. So, um, again, upset what I expected. So that worked for me. So, um, you know, I don't know that we necessarily need to drag out Badgie for future seasons of Lower Decks, although I wouldn't be surprised if he does come back. But nonetheless, uh, as a season, you know, or as a one season character, definitely works. And I think it's a good spot at number 25. Yeah, I, I think there's a good chance that they'll bring Badgie back. They, they kind of reprogrammed him at the end of that episode, and then they brought him back for like one brief appearance. I think there's potential for him to still have um, a little bit of um, villainry in his veins, as they would say. Actually, I don't know if anybody says villain villainry in their veins, so... I, I made know. that up. Yeah, they do know. Okay. <laughs> well, here's a question. I mean, every Star Trek show has its kind of go-to villain for the most part. You know, like, say, Borg, Queen on Voyager, or Q on Next Generation. Like, could Badgie be the Lower Decks villain we see sprinkled throughout the run of the show? I I get that sense that that might just be kind of an easy go-to. I think, like, that would be fun, you know? Um, I And I wonder, do you think that there is kind of... You know, we'll discuss other characters who I think maybe started off as straight-ahead villains or uneasy allies. But do you think Badgie has that opportunity to kind of uh, expand what he can be or represent in terms of kind of an antagonistic character towards the other characters? I think they have to. I think if it plays the same role over and over again, it gets very repetitive. Uh, so... I think if we do see Badgie continue, they're going to find new facets and ways to use him. Maybe he's an uneasy ally in some episodes. I think there's that, something they can do with that character. Okay, well, Cam, what is 24? So my pick for number 24 was Seska from Voyager. Seska's um, a villain who I think the handling of that character wasn't necessarily great, but I think the performance was very strong. The image is very strong, and she has... I mean, if you're going to uh, rank a character on how they go out, her exit from the series is incredibly strong in basics. So it's a villain that the journey's a little bumpy, but I think ultimately the character really does kind of linger in the mind. And when she showed up, you know, as a holodeck character in um, Worst Case Scenario, there was some excitement to seeing that character back on the big screen. So I think Seska, uh, uh, 24 is a good spot for her, I think. Were you at all tempted to cheat and uh for number 24 uh say siska or seska and maj kala um maj kala did not even make my considerations <laughs> he he's the ultimate baddie from voyager well that is true he's the one that it's a real tragedy that maj kala wasn't facing off against older janeway in the finale of voyager do you think okay when we got to basics part two was that the natural end of Seska's story, had they not killed her off, do you think there was more to tell? Or do you think that just kind of fit perfectly with her character by then? I think you could, in a different world, have done more, where she's more of an opportunistic character who bounces around and is traveling through the Delta Quadrant alongside them in some way and pops in and out. I think that could have really worked. But once they tied her so closely to that Kazon stuff... I just think they wanted to cut ties with the Kazon mythology and just move on, and she fell victim to that. I also wonder, look, if she had already accomplished taking over the ship and it was taken back, 
again, I just don't know what else they could have done with that character where people would have just kind of been rolling their eyes at that point. I, I really do think she did meet her natural ends uh, by the time that we got to that. And oftentimes when, you know, we, we seize on like an interesting character, sometimes it just kind of take them past um, their due date to a certain degree. Yeah, there's nothing worse than a villain who's really cool and they keep bringing them back to the point where they feel watered down. Seska's death is like really fantastic. I can totally see a cool world where um, Seska shows up later in the series and maybe even joins the crew for a few episodes in an uneasy alliance kind of um, scenario. But the way she goes out, it's really strong. So I can't I can't really fault the writers with ultimately how they paid her off. It would have been great if maybe the Borg assimilated her and the, she mm. was like a detached drone or something like that that uh, they had encountered at some point. That, they could have had a little bit more fun with her, I agree. Well, you have a character that's like shifting, you know, even how she looks from like Bajoran to Cardassian. What if that was the kind of the journey of this character, you said, like being assimilated by the board or constantly changing how she looks throughout the course of the series? That could have been really interesting. She gets infected by the phage and looks like a Vidian. Sure, sure. I'm down for this. This is my fan fiction script right now. You've you've inspired me. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip over my 24 because I, I wonder if I would have gotten too much ridicule from you. I'm, I'm going to jump ahead to my number <laughs> 22. I, I just, I, and I don't know if he might make it onto your list further up. So that's why I don't want to show my cards. And I'll, I'll be honest if, if this person does make it onto your list. But um, my number uh, 23 is also from Voyager. I don't have a lot of one-off villains in here, but the one-off villain that I, I just felt, or one-off baddie that I just felt needed to be included was Kashik. He is the Devor inspector mm. from Counterpoint. And I think that is just such I like, that is a top five Voyager episode for me. And a lot of it has to do with Janeway's kind of met somebody that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with her, and you're never quite sure about what his allegiances are, and I went back and forth on what his endgame ultimately would be. The fact of the matter was, like, Voyager didn't have a great track record with casting, you know, um, 90s guy, as you <laughs> and I uh, had described, this kind of generic actor that they're constantly getting that just inevitably has the same haircut from you know 1994 um they did a good job with kashik and it was a character that's i'm okay with him being a one-off if they brought him back for whatever reason or if this developed into a recurring character within that same sort of story arc that we saw play out in one episode i would have totally been down with this guy who's really into classical music yeah, I would have loved to have seen this character brought back. This is the episode, um, Counterpoint is, um, I believe, Kate Mulgrew's favorite episode. And I would suspect the dynamic between those two characters is primarily why. Um, I would have almost considered putting him higher. Uh, we'll see how this goes uh, veto-wise, I guess, later down the road. But um, this is a very strong character. And as you said, so charismatic. Like, why did Star Trek so often struggle with kind of uh, all these guys who kind of look the same on the show? Um, they just really hit gold with this guy, whereas, like, so often they had the most generic, you know, actors of the week. It, it, it's weird, and I don't know what, like, quite what to make of it, and that, like, I think when it came to the original casting, like, the main characters, uh, Star Trek has a very, very extensive track record of hitting it out of the ballpark, but when it came to a lot of their recurring characters, 
there's just a lot of generic actors. And I remember watching like the special features for like season one of The Shield, that FX cop drama. And the creator of the show, Sean Ryan, he was saying to the casting people, like, I, I don't want you to be fearful of just casting the people that keep getting rotated as, you know, you know, uh, guest stars and like all the other series. I want you to feel as if you can take risks. I'm not going to judge you if like this person who hasn't had like a lot of jobs, if they don't work out, pick people that are interesting, even if they just have an interesting look that you mm -hmm. don't typically see on television. And I was just like, you know, I, I feel like sometimes like Star Trek just didn't take enough risks, uh, at least during the nineties era when it came to casting a lot of their supporting characters. I also wonder, too, if, like, we know the language of Star Trek is very specific and often very difficult for actors. And I wonder if a lot of these guys, they were just, like, cast a romantic lead, like a conventional romantic lead actor. And their charisma didn't really come across because they were kind of hung up on the language and acting style of Star Trek. Yeah, I give me more Rafe Fiennes, you know, and less... Oh, my God. Um, that would be amazing. Yeah, uh, who who is the most generic uh, '90s like uh, love interest cam that you can think of? I'm blanking for oh now. Oh my god! Like of that era of like movies. Oh my god, that's so difficult. Um, hmm. Um, that's how generic they are, Cam. We can't <laughs> even think. Okay, uh, let's jump over to your number twenty-two. Okay, I want to go with Silic. Um, now, Silic is a character. I think it's often difficult for people to really consider him a great bad guy because of the fact he's tied into the temporal Cold War, which was something of a disaster in plotting. But for me, Silic was the character that kept me going through all of those Enterprise mythology episodes in the first couple seasons. And he was someone who I was constantly excited to see what they were going to do with him and how they'd pay him off. And the Stormfront finale that pays off the Temporal Cold War is <laughs> not Enterprise's finest couple hours, but I do like what they do with this character. I think they carry him through to a somewhat satisfying resolution. I just think they could have done so much more. Like I think we could be looking at Silic as being a high-ranking character in a different world, in a different story arc, maybe on a different show. I think a big part of it is just the actor. I believe that was played mm -hmm. by John Fleck. And he brought, I, I think, just kind of that interesting vibe that you would not have gotten with, like, generic 90s man, you know? Like, he just, even, like, just the annotations in the delivery of his lines there. Like, it was like, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of gripped by this guy, even if they're making him um, do, you know, some lame things. My criticism, though, is, does Silic not seem more like a, a tool you know, to be used by future guy. He's more of kind of the passive agent more than like the ultimate baddie. Well, he falls into the henchman kind of category a lot of the time, but I think he's a very compelling henchman. <laughs> so he's the one who plays the far larger role in terms of um, representing the villainous forces of the temporal cold war. So I can kind of go with it. And uh, just as a visual also, fantastic makeup, absolutely incredible design there. Yeah, it's interesting because I think we did get like one appearance of him outside of the makeup. I think that was in Stormfront when he ended up, we found out that he was on like 1944 Earth as well. And I think he even just like he was able to kind of capture that character without relying on the latex. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Uh, Cam, I am going back to Voyager once more, and this is one who I, I do think is considered kind of an ultimate baddie, the one calling the shots, the one who, look, he has some nuance. We can understand where he's coming from. I wouldn't call him a one-off. He did appear in a two-part episode, but an epic two-parter it was. And this is Anorax, as mm. Kurtwood Smith portrayed him in Year of Hell. Yes, Anorax made my list as well. Um, Kurtwood Smith is so fantastic as this character, and he could have easily been kind of that evil James Bond-style villain on Star Trek. And that's something we talked about when we reviewed that two-parter, and that he has a lot of like Bond villain tropes going on. But they give him a tragedy that when this episode is like ending and you see him looking at designs for time travel, there's a poignancy there. Like you feel bad for this guy who we've just watched do horrible things for two hours. And that comes totally from the performance. I think this is a fantastic villain character and a fantastic villain performance from um, Kurtwood Smith. One of the things going against him, though, is is this man way too obsessed with baguettes and cheese? Or is it just the perfect amount to be a villain? Because if he wasn't obsessed with those things, that would make him less compelling as an adversary. For those that don't recall, look, every time he went and made a planet or a civilization disappear, he'd always take relics away from that planet just so that he could preserve them on his ship that was protected by that temporal shielding. And all these relics happen to be food items, which I was like, well, okay, well, there you go, sir. <laughs> so my next one for slot number 20, I have Sela. And I think we've been critical of Sela in the past. And so much of that is just because of the way they <laughs> wrote her out of the show or didn't write her out of the show, depending on how you'd like to interpret it. Because this character had a very weak exit. But I think of the buildup of this character, the intrigue, and the big reveal as to who it was and the backstory, seeing Denise Crosby back on the show in Romulan attire, what a visual, and she had menace. Like, this was a character I found very compelling just in terms of even the, um, you know, somewhat limited screen time she had showing up in, like, Mind's Eye and the Redemption two-parter. It was disappointing how lame her journey ended, and I, I, I'm still baffled as why, as why they just never brought her back in Deep Space Nine. Like, mm -hmm. I know you and I had kind of talked about how there would be that concern of every time she walks on screen, there'd have to be this exposition dump about, like, who she is because of, like, her connection to Tasha Yar. I think we could have gotten over that, though. I think they could have made that character work in a way that would have been far more interesting. And... Honestly, I think Picard has the potential to do um, to do her arc right in, moving forward in seasons two and three of the series, as it seems as if they are filming those consecutively as we speak here. Um, would you want to see Sela back on Picard, or do you think maybe her time has passed? I would love to see her brought back and paid off properly. And I don't know, maybe I'm setting myself up for disappointment in putting my hopes on Picard to pay this off. Because so far, Picard has been a little shaky in paying off things that I would have liked to have seen brought back. I never expected to see Hugh go down in a knife fight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's a shark. <laughs> he was going up against a jet. What can you do? Exactly. So, um, you know, maybe Picard is a show that I don't have the most confidence to pay that off. But that's the thing about Sela. Sela came around at the wrong time in the franchise's history. It was an era where, yeah, after she exited... You know, after that two-parter on Romulus, like, um, 
It was like, okay, well, that's the end of that character, I guess, whatever. You have those events happen in the modern day. Seely would be popping up on other Star Trek shows. They would not be terrified of explaining this this character on Deep Space Nine or, you know, say Star Trek Nemesis if, if they wanted to bring her in there. They would have a certain amount of faith in an audience being able to, you know, understand this geeky stuff. Wouldn't it be amazing if we do see her in season two and she's now like a, a refugee living on Vulcan and someone goes up to her and they're like, what are you doing here? And she's like, I'm embedded. <laughs> well, it would be in keeping with that character. She was obsessed with embedding Romulan soldiers on planet mm. uh, Vulcan. And, and Cam, exactly how many Romulan soldiers did she plan to embed on Vulcan? Was it 10,000? I think it was maybe 100,000. Okay. okay. Which seems like a big number, unless you consider the fact that there are 9 billion people that live on Vulcan. Yeah. I don't know how they take over the planet. And those Vulcans are very smart. They've got nerve pinches that they can unleash on the invaders, you know? Yeah, like I, it, my money would be on the Vulcans figuring out the problem and quickly solving it. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, next up for me, um, this is one, I would call him a baddie. Uh, he's, he, he's not the ultimate villain, but I would say he's a really solid baddie. He's kind of a this toad of a character. Um, this is going to be my first pick from Deep Space Nine. But Liquidator Brunt, played hmm. by the fantastic Jeffrey Combs, I would be remiss if he does not make our list with just kind of his antics. He's Look, you, you, you don't always agree with Quark's methods, but it's hilarious when you bring on Brunt and you agree even less with Brunt's methods as well. You know, it's just kind of like he was a great kind of character to be kind of the kiss ass when he needed to be he was always in it for himself and i i just think it would be uh too much of a loss if we did not include him number 19 in the ultimate baddies list i think brunt is actually a very well written character because so much of what quark does on the show is to basically showcase the worst of Frankie instincts or um you know their approach to life and have other characters kind of give the disapproving nods in Quark's direction. So when you're coming up with an adversary for Quark, it's like, okay, what do we do? We have a hero on this show or protagonist on the show who's like considering dealing weapons. So how do we make a character that is somehow less likable and also seen as an adversary in opposition to Quark? And Brunt is the perfect example because there's also that like, I don't even know how to describe it. There is like a matter of fact, almost blandness to Brunt that makes him that much more frustrating because Quark has so much personality, whereas Brunt is kind of a straight line in so many ways that you can totally see how these two characters butt heads. He is a little one note. I'll, I'll give you that. But I think part of the genius though is like, remember like you have Frasier as like the cheer spinoff. And one of the genius things that they did about that is they brought on an even, you know, prissier character, like a character who's even more Frasier than Frasier, and that was his brother Niles. And I think that really makes that character, that makes Frasier, your main character, pop that much more. And you, you can have him bounce off of that character's antics as well. And I think they did that with Quark and Brunt's uh, to good effect. Yeah, totally, totally. So my next one is okay now now we're getting into a difficult position because <laughs> we've each written our own list independently and so we uh, are trying to assemble 25 and we don't want number one to be the crystalline entity um, <laughs> so well, it's I top think, 10 though 
<laughs> Definitely top 10. Okay, so I think what I'm going to do for next, I think Admiral Pressman from Pegasus. Um, uh, Riker's former captain and uh, played by Terry O'Quinn. We have seen so many bad apples uh, representing Starfleet on the show. So many admirals or captains that went evil. You know, I think of characters like Matt Decker, for example, on the original series. But Admiral Pressman is so magnetic and he has one episode. It's kind of like um, the actor from Counterpoint um, in that you have one episode, you've got to make your impact. And Pressman really does. Like that is a character... This is later into TNG's run, like season six, is it? Or season seven? I believe this is season seven. Yeah, so like season seven is not necessarily the strongest TNG season. And, you know, DS9's kicking off. There's a lot of exciting things going on there. Um, (laughs) Like the storyteller. And um, (laughs) so... (laughs) There are stories being told. There are indeed. So you don't necessarily expect an all-time great villain on season 17 G, but Pressman is really, really memorable. Uh, I think that Terry O'Quinn has this way of just kind of oozing this odious sort of factor without make him, making him seem like somebody you just hate. You know, like he is, he's got kind of this charm to him, like this uh, magnetism, which is just perfect. The other funny thing, though, is... Um, he and Jonathan Frakes are actually like very, very close in age. So it's just funny to see kind of this, uh, him play this father figure uh, to him uh, throughout this episode. And you buy it. Like he feels like a father figure. And it's interesting also that Terry O'Quinn was the star of the original horror movie, The Stepfather. A lot of the charm and sort of the dark undertones of that performance feel very much alive in Pressman. And it is so funny to just see like Riker, kind of this character who's so often represented as like the ideal of what Starfleet can achieve, kind of quaking under Pressman. Do you think he's out on a parole by now? Hmm. I mean, that treaty with the Romulans, like, you know, like uh, we eventually did get the cloaking device uh, installed on the Defiant, you know? I don't know. Like, like maybe they'll give him a little leeway. I don't even know what, like, because he would go to prison, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, the thing is, like, you know, you go to the original series and a lot of what prison is is also, like, reprogramming for society. So I'm like, I don't know what exactly prison is in TNG. So maybe they reprogrammed him and he's, you know, fit, fit as a fiddle. We, we saw prison uh, in that era with uh, Tom Paris and Caretaker when he's on the penal colony in New Zealand. Um, True. It seemed pretty good. Uh, they were teaching him how to be a carpenter. So so maybe Terry O'Quinn's a carpenter now. <laughs> Would it be great if Pressman shows up in like uh, Picard as you know somebody who's living in like that stardust city that they had in like season one? I could imagine that. <laughs> That would be great. Or we have a moment where they have to build something and Picard's like, I know just the man for this job. And then we cut to like Terry O'Quinn with like a hammer and nails, putting up a level, measuring things. I'd be down for that. And he's got that little mini golfer's pencil in his, tucked between his ear and his uh, head, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Cam, I am pleased with uh, number 17 here on my list. Uh, well, our list, I should say. And this is one Lawn Suter from Voyager. Mm-hmm. This is somebody who kind of falls on that spectrum of baddiness in which, look, he starts off as an all-out villain. This is a sociopathic killer. He kills just for the sake of doing it. It's such a great showcase episode for Tuvok, and 
he finally wants to be redeemed. He, he feels as if there's a place for him to do so with Voyager. And, you know, speaking of basics, he gets that redemption arc. He becomes the uneasy ally, somebody that we're really drawn to. And I, I, this character, I don't know how much this character would have worked if not for Brad Dourif in the role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lon Suter's a character who very much grabbed my attention right from that first episode, Meld. And when you see him taking back the ship in basics, it's what a fantastic redemption story for that character. And I almost would have liked to have seen him stick around and kind of delve into the kind of the darkness of who this character is for many seasons. Like, I think you could have written so many Lon Suter stories, but that's maybe why we remember him so fondly was that he only had, you know, three episodes. Well, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how there should have been like a Maquis flashback episode in season one of uh, Voyager. And I think maybe we missed mentioning that it would have been fun to see Lon Suter uh, appear then. But I, I guess the timing would not have worked out because I don't think Suter was introduced until after season one. But it, they should have done a Maquis flashback episode in like season seven or something. And that would have been like a great opportunity. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my next one. Now, I've got a few I've got to look at because I wanted to put a Klingon right around here and I've got a couple names. I think I'm going to go with General Chang, I think. Um, <laughs> too low, sir. Too low, but okay. You think too low? I feel just right. So I maybe we'll revisit this when we do uh, vetoes at the end. We can shift yes. things around. I guarantee you we will revisit this. <laughs> Okay, because I feel like General Chang, as played by Christopher Plummer, the immortal Christopher Plummer, um, he's a really, really strong visual character. I think when you look at Klingon adversaries, it's interesting, actually, when I was looking at my list of Klingons, and it's like, well, clearly the Klingons are like the all-time great adversary of Star Trek. But when you actually try to nail down a specific all-timer Klingon villain, it gets a little more difficult. Because it's so often just the Klingons as, you know, a species on the original series as the adversaries versus an, you know, an individual character. But General Chang is someone who, I mean, Star Trek VI is one of the great TOS movies. And I think he is a very strong oppositional force for Kirk. And, I mean, him sitting on the bridge at the end as he's about to be blown up, quoting Shakespeare. <laughs> that is an exit. And I'm sure Christopher Plummer, an actor with a rich history in the theater knew that that was a hell of an exit. Cam, he is the most memorable Klingon baddie of all time. You know, like, he, like just as you say, the visual look, uh, incredibly striking. You have the lines delivered by one Christopher Plummer, of all people. And this is a guy, he's a very different sort of Klingon as well. He's not the gruff sort of, like, uh, caveman-like Klingon. This is a thinking man's Klingon. It's very clear through all that. This is the guy who's leading a cabal in which he actually enlists help from, you know, Starfleet in order to make this happen. Like, this is the thinking man's Klingon. I think he's just one of the best of all time here. So, yes, I'm glad he's on our list. I think maybe we'll have to revisit just how far up he is here. But, um, Cam, next on my list, is, or our list, I should say, once more. Um, oh. Number... number <laughs> You've split away now that I've put... Um... <laughs> General Chang that low. <laughs> I'm sorry, bro. <laughs> but number 15, um, I'm going to put Luther Sloan, the first Section 31 operative that we ever met, played by one William Sattler. This is a guy that, if played by, like, generic 90s man, 
Mm. I don't think we would have ever seen Luther Sloan once again, but Sadler has such a presence. I think a lot of people might know him best from, say, something like Shawshank Redemption as one of the prisoners in there. But I just think uh, his back and forth with Bashir, that uneasy alignment with what they want and what Bashir is against, which is upholding the Federation values that he knows best. And also just like moments where like you think Sloan is dead and he's able to make that appearance once again at the end of the episode, uh, uh, Inter Arma Enum Silent Ligas. And finally, like I think his return for his final appearance, it, it, it kind of deflates the character to a certain degree in that like he's able to be fooled so easily by Bashir and he ultimately takes the 24th century equivalent of a cyanide pill and we go into his brain. It wasn't like kind of the, the high that I was hoping to go out on, but he's very, very uh, fascinating kind of uh, antagonist baddie to me. Yeah. I mean, uh, William Sadler is an actor who <laughs> I think the first time I saw him, maybe, or at least the most memorable time I saw him, because I think I would have seen Bill and Ted, but I also, you watched, you know, Bill and Ted's bogus journey and you really don't have a good understanding on what William Sadler even looks like by the time that movie's over. So as a kid, he didn't stick with me really visually, but I will never forget the nude martial arts scene in Die Hard 2. Um, that's the way they set up that his character is a very weird villain in Die Hard 2. And uh, boy, William Sadler has so much intensity there. It carries over to what he's doing with Luther Sloan here, where boy, this is one of the most intense villains we have on the list. Um, and what a performance. Like you hire a character actor like William Sadler, he is going to deliver. And I think it's really interesting that final episode where they go inside of his brain. It, I agree with you. It is kind of a weird exit for the character. It also falls right in the final chapter of Deep Space Nine, where maybe we want to be focusing on the Dominion War more so than Luther, uh, Luther Sloan's brain. But there's not many villains I think are more interesting to delve into the mind of than Luther Sloan either. I just found it funny that his entire brain consists of the corridors of the Defiant. <laughs> that yes he's a he's a very baffling man but he reminds me almost of a villain like the riddler in the batman series where it's the um the intelligence of that character and the psyche that makes him fascinating he's not a physical adversary he's someone who is clearly smarter than really all of the characters on deep space nine and that's what makes him so scary guess what i knew which villain you were talking about before you even said batman series <laughs> But you don't remember him doing nude martial arts in Die Hard 2? Oh, that, that, no, I, I've just put that into my uh, Deep Space Nine fan fiction. <laughs> of course, of course. Okay, so my next one, I think I want to fit Dolem in here from the Zindi arc of Enterprise. And Dolem is a character, <laughs> you're already laughing. <laughs> Dolem's greater than General Chang? Yes. <laughs> okay, Cam. Go for it. <laughs> we have so much more with Dolem. <laughs> so much more time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So I think as the face of the Zindi, the great adversary for season three, he's a very, very strong visual. He's very intimidating. And I think when we have that big face off with him and Archer at the end, it feels like a big climax to that story that I am fully invested in. I think it would have been very easy to play him as just a very boring big bad. But I think Dolem has a lot of personality. I think he has a lot of quirks and a visual design that is like iconic. 
the, what I'll take away from him though is he is a little one note, and it, it's kind of the, uh, the the he he is memorable. I agree with you there, but it, it's yeah. And as far as reasoning goes, like there are villains who I understand their motivation, whereas Dolom is more like must destroy, must destroy humanity at all costs, and it's just kind of I I I more intrigued by the villains that you feel as if these diplomatic captains can actually have like a, a real back and forth with and try to convince them of their uh, ways that might be wrong or not. Whereas with Archer, it kind of came down to fisticuffs. Sure. He, Dolan feels like a Star Wars villain. I mean, this season definitely kind of plays into a lot of Star Wars tropes by the time you get to Zero Hour. And he is a very strong Star Wars villain. <laughs> like, I really do think he has that sort of impact. And I think he very much fits the purpose that he's intended for. Okay, I'm going to hop on over to more of a, uh, a classic sort of Star Trek uh, villain baddie. Uh, this is Gull Madred from Chain of Command Parts 1 and 2. This is, <laughs> look, if we're talking about like uh, nuance, uh, this is kind of what you want to bring to a character who is ultimately revealed to be just a kind of a pitiful sort of man, somebody who is so caught up with his abusive upbringing as well that it's all revealed, and Picard is able to do that through not fisticuffs, but through talking to him and cutting him down by Picard showing his own fortitude uh, through his, his psychology, which Badred is just not capable of cracking. But in those moments, this is just one of the most frightening and captivating villains to watch, you know, throughout that, uh, especially just part two. Oh, yeah. Gol Madred is the character I had ranked even higher. And I think that is a very big testament to the writers and David Warner, because I think that is the highest ranking I have for someone who just appeared really in one episode. So he technically did appear in two. He does appear at kind of at the end of Chain of Command, but a lot of the fireworks are really in the second part. So he really does feel like kind of almost like a one episode character. So for me, like that is a real testament to just how much he delivers. He is... I think our first great Cardassian villain, is he not? Had oh, Goldacott come uh, around absolutely. yet? I'm trying to remember the airing order. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, Goldacott had already appeared at this point. Because okay. uh, th this would have been season six of Next Generation and season one of Deep Space Nine. So Goldacott, we would have seen him uh, at least in the premiere by this point. Fair enough. But nonetheless, very, you know, a very, very, very strong Cardassian villain here. And really one that shakes you like a lot of the villains we've talked about we talk about you know how cool they kind of were on screen and how memorable and just how iconic they were whereas like Gol Madrid, he's a very unsettling character and I think I kind of regard him in a different way than I do you know your Anoraxes or your Dolims or you know your General Changs yeah absolutely so uh Cam jumping over to number 12 balls in your court okay so number 12 I have Michael Eddington from Deep Space Nine. Um, we did an episode fairly recently about the McKee, and Eddington was, I think, you know, so often we look at Gul Dukat as the great adversary of Cisco, but Eddington became a really fascinating brief adversary of Cisco, maybe the second best that Cisco really faced off against. And so much of it is about this difference in how they perceive, um, you know, Starfleet versus the McKee ideologies. And Eddington, one of the genius moves was establishing a character who's kind of bland. You kind of don't pay that much attention to. And then suddenly writing him 
just a like firecracker of a role and pitting him against the most intense Starfleet captain we've ever seen. I mean, we get multiple episodes where these two are adversaries and they just get more and more compelling as they go. I'm picturing you like building your list here, kind of thumbing through people's filmographies and going, sorry, Christopher Plummer, I've got Kenneth Marshall. <laughs> How did you no, know? Look, look, I think Eddie did is great. I, I, I do, I do. I, I wonder though, he does kind of fall into that trap. Uh, like uh, Kenneth Marsh, Marshall, like I, I think he brought a lot more to that character than I would have ever expected, but he's kind of that 90s, you know, generic 90s man casting. I think he kind of epitomizes what we were talking about. Do you think if they had cast somebody just a little bit like wilier in their delivery, like somebody who you weren't always sure about leading up to that, it could have been that much greater? Do you think kind of the genius is that they pick somebody who's purposefully looked and seemed like kind of by the book? Oh, I think the kind of milk toast look is why this character works so well. And that's something that... That's why Chang is so low on your list. <laughs> well, I look at Chang, though, as more of... He's a movie character, and a lot of the movie villains feel a little simpler to me. Whereas I look at what they're doing with Eddington, and it's far more complex and interesting. Oh, look, I, 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 I can't fault you. Eddington was on my list. It just, I kind of... I had to leave him in the dust at a certain point when I realized like how few people we had left or how many slots we had left and then how many more antagonists and baddies we had to go. But look, you're not going to get an argument from me. Eddington de definitely deserves to be in the top 25. Cool. Next on my list, um, Cam did not appear until a little bit further into Deep Space Nine's run, but I think made kind of a, a memorable splash uh, while she was around. Somebody I think is incredibly recognizable um, because it resembles, you know, one of our main characters here. Uh, this, of course, is the female changeling uh, that we first saw in Search Parts 1 and 2, who was just kind of a fixture in Odo's arc moving forward from there. Um, it's like, by all of our standards, as we judge it as people that value human life, like she is a baddie. She, she is a villain. But ask Odo, is this woman a villain? And he would say no. It's just maybe misguided or, or doesn't quite understand the significance of humanity. But I just think there's so many fascinating things that they're able to do with this character. Even just an episode like Heart of Stone, which could have been like a little bit of a drag. And then you have the big reveal at the end in which she's impersonating Kira this entire time. She has this particular interest in Odo, which I just think adds so much to the motivations that we understand of the founders. Yeah, the female changeling is a great pick and a character that comes across in a way that, you know, I talked about Gull Madrid. It's a character that kind of makes you uncomfortable. The female changeling does as well. Um, and I think it's because Salom Jens plays it so just like, there's like an eerie calmness to this character that almost grates on you in a way that you're just like, oh, like, I just don't trust this person. And it, it just keeps building and building. And you understand why people are uncomfortable with her around Odo. But you can also understand how she is able to provide a very comfortable place for Odo to go to as a confidant. Like, it is a fantastic villain performance because it is portrayed very much in that sort of mundane, evil sort of way. And by the time you get to the end and she's being, you know, tried and, like, you know, um, basically having to um, answer for her part in the Dominion War... You're just like, oh man, this feels like a villain that even though she's probably going away for a long time, I would never count her out. 
Uh, look, uh, I if she gets a hundred year prison sentence, I think that's going to feel like uh, you know a month mm-hmm. to us. You know, like I think uh, she she's probably still around in like the Discovery era at this point. But I I, I just think like it is telling that. We have Solomy Jens in this role, and we never really bring back like kind of an analog sort of changeling, except for that one who is killed in the adversary. I think they knew that they kind of struck uh, 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 gold with this casting here, and like you say, it's kind of the, this almost grating calmness that she carries with her. But the thing is, that means it's working. She's eliciting a reaction out of us, and I think that I think that was just fantastic. Yeah, a lot of times uh, people will criticize villains like that because they aren't necessarily flashy or fun to watch. Like they are intended to make you kind of uncomfortable, but it's a testament to the writing and to the performance that it's very much pitched to achieve that. And they really do pull it off. Okay, Cam, we are now in the top 10. Um, You've got a lot of weight on your shoulders. You are deciding who is going to be in the top 10. And uh, at at this point for our first pick, if you say the salt vampire, I am going to have to have a a conversation with you later on. That is not suitable for air. Yeah, um, I'm looking at kind of who I have left. And I'm wondering if we're going to run into issues here with reordering. So I'm almost wondering if I need to introduce someone to reorder at a certain point um because just, I'm just go at... i would say naturally go with who you think should be you know number 10 here okay well i'll just do that then so i think number 10 why don't we go with the intendant from deep space nine mirror universe kira um not necessarily as complex as the female changeling or some of the other characters we've talked about but this is a grand operatic star trek villain that delights in being evil and every time they can find an excuse to bring her back she just gets more and more fun like there is a camp value to this villain that just never stops paying off even in episodes that don't necessarily deserve her i don't need somebody to you know have like layers upon layers of nuance for them to be just a gripping villain and the thing is like putting an awe visitor in this role where she's pretty much as opposite as you can be from major kira which i i get it that's what the mirror universe is meant you know, for at this point but uh she just has this cunning way of, of sucking you into her orbit you understand why people are at her beck and call and i just like i, I i'm enthralled whenever she's on screen i think one of my best finds at the star trek convention is when i got the intendant uh, action figure as well mm, yeah that was an awesome find for sure uh, for me, my number n- nine here, I'm gotta, I, I gotta go with Damar. Like this is like a fella that, when it comes to ultimate baddies, he's not a General Chang. I, I, I will say <laughs> that. But this is a guy who he, he is a, a bad dude. Like he literally murders Xiao. But I'm fascinated by his journey here and how he starts from like a button pusher, ultimately becomes you know, Leggett Ducats, you know, the puppet of the Dominion for the Cardassian Union. And by the end of it, he's a freedom fighter. You know, he is an uneasy ally. And like, he's even just giving like Kira just like a really hard time, you know, when she's trying to, you know, help the Cardassians out with kind of the, the underground as well. This is a nuanced baddie. This is somebody who, like Lon Suter, has a very clear journey, and it was never a journey that I expect ever expected him to go on when I first saw him in like season four. 
Yeah, where he's giving like one line of exposition. <laughs> you would never anticipate that he would be like the savior of Cardassia in the finale of the series. Well, it was interesting because like Iris Stephen Bear apparently told Casey Biggs, like, I want you for this role. And Casey Biggs is like, I don't know, like anybody could say these lines. Like there's nothing here to do. And Iris Stephen Bear is like, don't worry about it. Like I, I've got some ideas. And so I, I just wonder how far in advance he was thinking like, you know, Damar would play a part. I don't think Iris Stephen Bear figured Damar would become, you know, kind of this figurehead, you know, leader that, to represent Cardassian freedom by the end. But I do think that he did have like some interesting plans for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. So my next one, I have lore. Now, Lore is a villain who I think, you know, introduced a little bit shaky in Data Lore. That's not a great episode, but right away the concept sells. We have already fallen in love with Data. Like, that's a character they nail right out of the gate pretty much. And to see evil Data was just genius. And I think we can talk about maybe the direction of where that character went. I don't know that by the time we get to Descent, it's the greatest exit for Lore. But when you look at episodes like Brothers... um, that is just a fantastic examination of that character. And there is a menace. Um, you know, you so often hear that um, discussion of Spock, where they say, whenever Spock is smiling, it's unsettling. Like something bad is going to happen. And when Lore shows up and starts being like showing emotion, you're like, oh no. Oh God, where what's going to happen now? I, I think Brent Spiner is like, great at doing these kind of antagonistic roles and we see it also in like say something like uh eric soong in enterprise and what, what's his name in picard is like ignacio or something it's something like really um wasn't it alton oh alton soong but i think he had like a middle uh, a, a middle name that was like like indigo or something like that i don't know <laughs> i'll have to look it up but like you're you're totally right like brent spider brings this menace to this uh character and i, I do you think it was ultimately a mistake that they did not bring him back for nemesis that they tried to create a new character with b9 yeah I, again this is the sort of thing that only would have happened then like you would have seen lore show up in nemesis now if it was made but i guess in that era they just didn't want to explain lore it probably just came down to that I just think he would have been well known enough to general audiences that it, it would have worked. You know, like uh, you could have said, like, oh yeah, Data's prototype that had been dismantled. And that's what uh, B4 was. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they could have easily done it. But also, wasn't there a discussion? Like, the director of that movie was Stuart Baird. And, like, he thought Jordy LaForge was an alien. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure when they were like, we have this character from the TV show, he's like, no. <laughs> I don't think Baird, I, I think he was more kind of a gun for hire. Like it was really kind of Rick Berman calling the shots there. And I think it was yeah. probably Rick Berman more than anyone else that said like, as you were suggesting, like let's not potentially confuse people. Like let's go with like a brand new character. You know, it's a good thing too that the franchise had never brought back a villain from the original show to serve as a villain for one of the movies. That never would have paid off, right? Ah, uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This would have been a complete waste of time, and you know, people would have been too confused to even understand why it's uh, a relevant, uh, captivating sort of villain. Yeah, no kidding. Well, Cam, uh, number seven uh, on the list here. I gotta go with Wei Yun. Yet another entry from Jeffrey Combs, but it's just kind of that that 
toady factor that I was alluding to that he had with uh, Brunt. It, it is on full display here. The thing that I, I, I say kind of takes away from him would be the fact that he's more of kind of a, a tool of the Dominion rather than kind of the one calling the shots. But oh, what a tool he is. Like he is just like fantastic at being kind of that that vampire in the room like sucking your energy out and ultimately having this charm to him even if it is so fake and phony on the surface the episode that i think really makes you come around at him is we have the defective model in uh uh treachery faith in the great river in which uh, odo and the defective weyun go on a road trip and you're like okay this character is capable of so much more. And I, I really appreciate what, you know, somebody like Combs can bring to it. Because I think they they had been rotating through various sort of Vidian, or not Vidian, uh, Vorta actors uh, leading up to uh, Jeffrey Combs. They killed him off and they're like, he's too good. Let's just say that all the Vortas are clones. Yeah, he is the definitive Vorta. And do you think we see that species brought back again? Yes, I think think lower decks might be the one to do it even though i don't don't know how i quite explain the whole um you know wormhole thing at this point who knows what the status is with dominion but i think lower decks might lend itself best to more vorta mm-hmm. yeah you could also do something really funny with the vorta because the thing about Wayun was they also got good comedy out of that character like for a character who kind of always keeps a certain chilly tone to you know to the character um there's a lot of a lot of dynamic stuff they could do with the with uh, Wayun over the course of that series, and he's a very very memorable character. And Jeffrey Combs, uh, well, we did a whole episode uh, about you know Jeffrey Combs and his contributions to Star Trek, and um, he just brought all of these characters so to life. Okay, Cam, pressure's on yet again. Number five. Okay, so I think um, Kai Win. Is where I'm oh, gonna slot sorry, I said number five. I am. Uh, I'm gonna take a little bit of pressure off of you. This is number six. I think I still have Kai Win. <laughs> oh no, no. It, it, the um, your order doesn't have to change. It's just uh, yeah. the numbers here are. Uh, I, I was just incorrect with what number is up next. Sure, sure. So I have Kai Win here. Um, <laughs> we talk about characters that maybe audiences hate <laughs> like just you know the ones who don't necessarily understand what they're trying to achieve with these villains they just can't stand them and i think kai win may be the epitome of this and we saw louise fletcher pull this off marvelously on the show but also in one flew over the cuckoo's nest as nurse ratchet and <laughs> that is a character that you just can't stand throughout and she just brings that strength to this character i mean putting her up against nana visitors kira is dynamite every single time and boy can you feel for kira like just being driven out of her mind by this character uh, she was actually number six on my list as well so we are totally in sync here and i i think th the fact that she she's able to get this reaction out of audiences and honestly it wasn't until like i did my first like real deep space nine rewatch in like the early 2000s that i came around and just realized like the genius of her performance in that you, you just you cringe when she's on screen but that means she's doing her job there and it's and there's a reason why they kept her around for all seven seasons she made it all the way to the finale as well like um louise fletcher is just killing it and cam that there really is nothing more disturbing than watching her and ducat eat fruit in bed right <laughs> no and there's nothing more annoying than her saying my child in this sort of patronizing tone well, I'm going to just refer to you as my child the rest of the episode. Sure, sure. 
Okay. Well, my child, uh, we are on our top five, so pressure is on me, and I'm going to follow up with yet another Jeffrey Combs baddie, and this is Shran, who by the time we get to season five, I, I wouldn't call him a baddie anymore, but boy, when he's beating up Captain Archer in um, Shadows of Pijem, you're like, okay, yeah. This guy is um, somebody who uh, is not in tune with what uh, Archer wants. Like, he doesn't have, like, the, the same goals as Archer throughout this. They, uh, like, he's even torturing Soval by the time we get to season three. Like, uh, or I, I should say season four uh, with the uh, Enar arc as well. This guy is somebody who, despite the fact that his goals, his motivations are not in line with the humans, the, the people that we're rooting for... I always understand where he's coming from, and I think it just takes the genius of Combs yet again to kind of sell this character as well. And I just, out of all the villains that he's, you know, portrayed here on this list, this is far and away the most captivating one. And and I, I'll back away from that statement. He, he's not a villain, though. He, that's why I, I like calling these more like baddies at this point. Mm -hmm. Or just antagonist, because he is an antagonist in so many of these stories, whether it's them, you know, squabbling over Zindi technology or, you know, him getting into like, I don't know, like a, what is it, an Andorian ice pick fight with Archer? <laughs> We've all done that. Back of course, of course. <laughs> we used to before the pandemic all the time, every weekend. <laughs> well, that's how Hugh was originally going to be killed off in the first draft uh, <laughs> of that script. That would have been amazing. Boy, opportunity missed. Anyway, so I guess next we go to number four. Kim, Kim before you go there, I, yeah, are are we kind of like um, are, are we getting antsy at all about like the uh, the four that are left, or do you feel pretty confident like these the remaining four like we we haven't left anybody big off of our list here? So the top four, if it follows the trajectory of what I have, I'm very comfortable with it. Okay. Um, I think it will actually. I I would be shocked if it didn't. Um, there's a few, maybe we'll name check at the end who kind of got bumped off the list along the way that I kind of feel a little sad for, but I feel pretty good about the ones left in the top four. Okay. Well, number four, let's hear it, sir. Okay. So this might be controversial to some people. I'm going to say number four is Khan. Okay. I know that's, I'm, that's not the gasp I was waiting for, Tyler. <laughs> I, I, I'll say this. I, I did not have a uh, con as my number one. I did not have Khan as my number two. I'm perfectly okay with him being at my number four. And uh, you explained to me, um, you know, uh, why he's maybe not right at the, the top tier of all Star Trek uh, baddies. Right. Okay, so I think his first two appearances are pretty dynamite. I mean, he is the greatest, I think, villain for the original series, and especially opposite Kirk. Um, but to me, like, the thing about Khan is... Um, there's a little bit of diluting going on and that kind of ties into Star Trek into darkness to me. Like I don't love everything they've done with Khan and I look at the other characters above him and I more or less really like what they've done with all with those villains across the board. There's maybe little, you know, things we'll talk about that maybe didn't quite work as well as they should, but like, I feel like they did an actively bad job with Khan really in Star Trek into darkness. They really misunderstood that character and miscast that character as well. Um, you know, Are you sure they miscast him? <laughs> Hello? Hello, I'm Khan. I... Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, to, you know, maybe that's unfair. Like, maybe there are people who are annoyed. They're like, well, that's not the real Khan. We should be focusing solely on 
um, Ricardo Montalban, and he is a fantastic villain. Um, he's one of the all-timers, and I think top four is pretty damn good. <laughs> it is, but it's he. It's a smaller sample size as well. And you yeah. kind of alluded to maybe the movie villains just aren't as layered as the ones that we get in the TV series. And look, I think that both appearances that we got, um, you know, for Space Seed and Wrath of Khan were fantastic. There's a reason why he's so memorable, but I... I, I think that, as you were saying, Cam, the, the remaining three, they just do so much more for me. I, I find mm-hmm. myself uh, as if there's so much more story to tell, whereas where I see Khan, I think I kind of, I, I'm happy with his journey. I, I feel like that journey came to a good conclusion, a Wrath of Khan, when they tried to reopen it in into darkness. It kind of, as you say, kind of diluted it to a certain degree, and... I, I'm not really interested in returning to Con Harrison as portrayed by Whitey McWhite, Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, and I remember when they were marketing Into Darkness, so much of it was kind of putting him in a position of kind of being like a Joker figure in marketing. I just don't view Con as that. I think, you know, as you said, he served his purpose in two very important Star Trek stories. But he doesn't feel like a legacy villain to me that I have a lot of interest in re-examining in future generations. Well, okay, Cam, top three. I feel very good about this one. Let's see if you might disagree. Um, Q. Q is the ultimate next-gen antagonist. He was there from the start. He was able to navigate you know, Picard's journey uh, of just like annoying the bejesus out of him all throughout until we culminate with one of the best all-time series finales we've ever seen on television, period, at this point. Um, even his appearances on, you know, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, I don't think it diluted the character in any way that uh, would have bugged me, like the way that we saw with Khan. Uh, we got a brief appearance in Lower Decks, and Cam, I, I mean, I think the cat's out of the bag. I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but uh, it looks as if he will be a return-in for Star Trek Picard. I'm hopeful they can really bring it, that they have an idea that makes this character worthwhile to bring back. And look, before they ruin him, I'm so happy to have him uh, as my uh, Sheriff of Nottingham. (laughs) I had him at number three as well. And there's something so durable about this villain. And I think if you you look at some of the other ones, even ones maybe who rank higher, they wouldn't necessarily work on other Star Trek shows, but Q really does. You can say that on Deep Space Nine, they never cracked the relationship and why it should really matter. And that's why he only had the one episode. But I think if you can find a way to work him in and create a character dynamic, he will always like serve his role very well. It's just that, you know, John Delancey's performance will always carry no matter what the show is. It's just about the dynamic with another character. So, I mean, Q is pretty much a masterstroke across the board on TNG. I mean, his weakest episode is probably that season one episode, Hide and Q, right? Yeah, I, I just wasn't a big fan of um, watching those weird French soldiers with monkey faces, like bayonet people. Not my thing. Sure. Yeah, that, and I mean, true Q, uh, I think that's the one where there's like the, the young female Q, right? Is that the, uh, Amanda the... Rogers, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like that one, it's not bad. It's not a bad episode by any stretch of the imagination. It's just not one of the all-time great Q stories. But like, it doesn't really matter what the episode is. Q is consistently mesmerizing to watch. I'm glad that True Q did answer the question, what if a Q could create puppies out of thin air? The question I'd always wondered. 
<laughs> yes. Well, the question I'm wondering, Cam, is who is your number two baddie in Star Trek? Number two is the Borg Queen. Boom. And yeah, uh, the Borg Queen, actually, it's funny. When I sat down to do the list, I was thinking in my head, well, conventional wisdom is that Khan is, you know, uh, one of maybe the number two villain of all time. Um, but when I really sat down and thought about it, I'm like, when did they ever once step wrong with the Borg Queen? There's not a single time they recast the character as Susanna Thompson on Voyager. Impeccable job. Was, like, that, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah. D- amazing performance. And the character is consistently written to just, like, the top-tier villainy. Like, every time that character's on screen, she's compelling. She's fascinating. They give her interesting things to do. There is no into darkness portrayal of the Borg Queen. There's no, you know, story that just feels like they're kind of wasting kind of a nothing story trying to prop it up with a great villain. The Borg Queen is consistently great. And so, like, to me, it's very hard to argue against her. And I know we were, like, really predicting her back on Picard, and I would be 100% down for seeing her on a future Star Trek show. I just hope they can, like, I just hope they continue this streak of high-quality writing with that character. I'm kind of okay at this point. I, I know I said something differently when season one of Picard was airing, but I'm okay if they don't bring her back because I, I'm ultimately happy with this being like one of the all-time greatest Star Trek villains. Just for what we saw, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we need to milk it more, but look, Alice Krieger, fantastic in her two appearances at the board, as the board queen, but might it be the Susanna Thompson version in Dark Frontier where she really is at her zenith? Mm, yeah it's quite yeah that's a very that's the episode that immediately jumped to my mind as well for probably her best turn on voyager I, i'm not saying just voyager i'm I, like even like first contact mm. as well like i i would say like the the fantastic moments between her and brent spiner boy oh boy i i i dig i just there's this um she's so much scarier i would say in dark frontier like just frightening to me and, and just the the power that she wields how she uses it and even just kind of the, the psychological elements that were on display with data they're, they're amped up even more here when you also see all the like horror scenarios of assimilations in that episode and then you are tying those really like really stomach turning images with this character like she is responsible for so much of it and so you just project that onto her and just the way she um, takes everything in very coldly and just gives nothing away. It just, oh, she's just like a character who you just, you love to hate her. I love to love her. <laughs> no, no, this isn't our ranking the Star Trek heroes list, Tyler. <laughs> okay. Well, Cam, I, I guess it's come down to, you know, me. Uh, we'll, uh, like I, I, I think people will think, okay, it's kind of obvious who my number one might be, but like I'll, I'll just break it out uh, for people. It, it's a character played by, it's just one of the like best actors that we've seen grace the screen, uh, tied to Star Trek here. Somebody who you know uh, started off in like kind of a role that's uh, well, we we didn't know what it was going to turn out to be, but ultimately Gabriel Lorca turned into. <laughs> Somebody that we could not have anticipated how amazing he was going to be as a baddie. You know, it's just like he—he's like 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 just Jason Isaacs brings it as an actor here, 
uh, you know, he's doing accents, you know, that Southern drawl, you know, he wants to rule the universe. Uh, Gabe, Gabe Lorca it is. I'm very conflicted on this one. And I think it's because I had at number one, the crystalline entity. Okay. I, <laughs> the destroyer I, I of worlds. Yeah, yeah. I know. Come on, people. Who are we kidding? It, it's Golden Cot. Yeah, totally. Golden Cot. I, I mean, we talked about the, the, the thing he's got going against him is after the episode of season six, Waltz, it's clear that that character has run his course, but he escapes from that, you know, stormy planet. We feel like, oh, there's still business left for him to do. And he goes and starts a Paul Wraith cult, and we get stuck in the world of magic books for the next one and a half seasons, Cam. It wasn't the best end to this complete narcissist sociopath of a character, but I'm glad I was there for the journey and ultimately watching this guy's eyes turn red and get shoved into the fire caves. I'm kind of okay with that. Well, the thing was, Mark Alimo always made it compelling. Even when you're kind of going like, ha, didn't really expect to be going in this direction. Nonetheless, I was along for the ride because of the performance. It is one of the all-time great villain performances. I think it is, it's tough to say it's the greatest villain performance. Because when you look at John, what John Delancey or, you know, the the two actresses playing the Borg Queen were doing. Boy, pretty tough to say, or, or Ricardo Montalban. But Gal Dukat has so much dimension and it is because you had seven seasons of Ducat storytelling and just how much I got to dig into this villain, the journey we went where he's suddenly like flying a Klingon bird of prey and like saving the crew. Like what? <laughs> like, how did we wind up here? And then when you get him taking over DS9 in the invasion arc and he's just the worst, you know, this is a villain that always kept me just rapturously attentive to everything he was doing there is no baddie who believes that he is the hero of his own story than Dukat. like this man truly is that wrapped up in himself as and he he literally has a savior complex and what in his pursuits with the paul wraith cult as well he didn't start off that way though and, and like he shows off he's kind of a thorn in the side of cisco you know for um, much of the early seasons, but like he's helpful at times. He's not so helpful at others. As you say, he's kind of that anti-hero by the time we get to season four, where he's commandeered that bird of prey. Um, but this man is just in it for himself, and it is fascinating to watch at all times. And I, I, I still love how like the biggest apologist for this character of all, it's, it's Mark Alimo, and that's why this villain works. Yeah. Is he the most punchable villain too? Like every time he's on screen sneering and <laughs> showing contempt, you just like want Kira to like slug him or something. Like, I don't know that there's many villains on the list who have that level of just like they're unbearable, but you just can't stop watching them. Well, it's hilarious because Mark Alimo was recounting in the DS9 documentary, What We Left Behind, uh, his final day of shooting, which Avery Brooks uh, while they're filming the fight sequence, Avery Book's fist got a little bit too close and ended up breaking uh, his, uh, Alimo's nose and he had to go to the hospital. And to this day, Avery Brooks was claiming like, I hit my mark. I, I was standing exactly where I was supposed to be. You leaned in. You leaned in. And Alimo was just like, uh, I, I was not going to be leaning into a, a fist punch, but okay. But <laughs> as far as uh, punchable villains, uh, I think Avery Brooks would agree with you. Yeah, yeah I, think, uh, I think Kira would agree too. Um, Cam, before, okay, we, we finalize our list, are, are there any 
switcheroos that you want to do. Hmm. I, I'll you, you know I'll be uh, I'll put my cards on the table. I I, I do want to switch Dalem with General Chang. Uh, that would put General Chang at number fourteen. He actually would have been number eight on my list, but I'm okay with him being at number fourteen and and sending Dalem down to sixteen. Yeah, like I can totally accept that. I think that's okay. I I don't have like. I actually think this list came a lot closer to what I had written out than, say, some of the past ones. There are a couple that I'm like, should we be slotting them in near the bottom? Like, I don't know. I'm curious on your thoughts on a couple characters um, that I, I cut along the way. Yeah, I cut a couple along the way. I, I did cut uh, Nero along the way. Yeah. I, I cut the Gorn from Arena on the way. I cut Moriarty as well. And um, this is the one I thought you were going to make fun of me. I I had him up like like at twenty four. Admiral Marcus, I uh, cut along the way too. <laughs> well, it's actually funny you say Admiral Marcus because I didn't have him on my list, but I did have John Frederick Paxton from the two parter at the end of Enterprise, the other Peter Weller villain, who I thought was um, a very interesting villain that had a lot of men- uh, a lot of menace and huge impact on basically the end story for those characters, especially, you know, Tripp and Tapal. So I had him on there as well. Um, yeah. So boy, like there was a couple there. Rudy Ransom is one I struggle with too, because I very much find that character fascinating is sort of this dark mirror image of what Voyager could have been. Um, but I also don't know where I would slot those ones in or, or the ones you named. I, I would be... I think you could make the argument if, if we're going to take one each, I, I'm okay with bumping Seska and Badgie out. Like, I could picture, like, a Rudy Ransom being, you know, more compelling than, say, Badgie over the two episodes that they appeared Right. In. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see that as well. Like, he's definitely far more complex than Badgie. <laughs> <laughs> um... Is there somebody else that I mentioned that might take over Seska? Like, I just, I, I have a tough time saying that the Gorn is a, a greater villain than Seska. Like, he literally just, he just punches Kirk, you know? I also feel like that's a case where, and I know we're opening it up to something beyond villainy, but it's really just a misunderstanding. Um, I don't know that the Gorn's, like, <laughs> that bad a dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's kind of just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm sure he's a delightful fellow. So I didn't really like, because believe me, I'm like the ultimate Gorn fan. So the fact I didn't have him on my list shows that I didn't really view the Gorn as, I thought Kirk was the villain, damn it. Okay. <laughs> um, um, but I'm trying to think though. So yeah, um, of who you had, it's interesting you had Nero. Uh, Nero for me, I had just like at number 26. I had considered Crawl a little more. Because I felt like they were doing more with that character, even though I do love Nero as what happens if an idiot has, like, unbelievable powers. Oh, good thing you don't have unbelievable powers, Cam. Very true. Very true. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm also okay with just kind of, other than the Dalem switcheroo, I'm okay with keeping Seska and Badgie at the end. It, it kind of adds a little bit of flavor. I don't think there's going to be too many lists uh, of all-time baddies that might include those two as well. Or do you mean Seska and Rudy Ransom and bumping Badgie? No, I mean, I'm okay with keeping Seska and Badgie. Okay, Let, let's go with that. Let's solidify the list as it is and keep Badgie on. Because also, I, I would feel really bad for not having representation for, like, any new Star Trek. It feels kind of snobby. 
uh, even though I think a lot of their villains kind of suck. <laughs> How upset do you think, you know, the writers of Discovery are that we have Badgie up higher than like Leland or Osira or Lorca? Uh, yeah, it's not great. Not great. I, I actually had, um, I think the highest ranking new villain. I actually just had Rizzo. And I just thought that was because the actress was having so much fun as a villain. Yeah. Sorry, Narek. Yeah, you know, he would be at the bottom somewhere. Okay, so uh, listeners, I will post a like the full list on our blog, and Cam, you'll get the link into the episode description as well. But check our Facebook page um, for the link in the coming days. That should be up next week. But I will just read through our lists uh, from one through twenty-five here. Dukat, the Borg Queen, Q, Khan, Shran, Kai Win, Weyun, Lore, Damar. The Intendant, Female Changeling, Eniton, Golmadred, General Chang, Luther Sloan, Dolom, Suter, Admiral Pressman, Liquidator Brunt, Sila, Anorax, Silic, Kashik, Seska, Badgie. Nice. <laughs> very complete, very complete, I think. I dig it. I, I, I'm happy with the representation that we've got. And, like, all of these folks, they're memorable. Like, I didn't have to struggle to, like come up with memorable baddies to put on here no i actually thought we would be introducing characters like baran from gambit just to fill out the list but we didn't have to do that which was nice yeah is there uh, just uh, you, you mentioned a couple that didn't make the uh top 25 i also had fun looking at kind of lame villains cam do do we want to save like a lame villain draft for like maybe a couple months down the road I think that could be really fun, yeah. Okay, okay. Let's do that. So I won't read out some of the lame villains that I have listed here. We'll wait for a couple months, and um, yeah, we'll do, we'll do that then. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Let us know your thoughts on our villain rankings or perhaps your own villain rankings. Now, Tyler, what are we doing next week? Well, Cam, next week, we will be tackling unsung heroes. Those are the characters that never quite got their due, but they really filled like or fulfilled like a, a great, important part, kind of gave the uh, the series its sinews, uh, I should say, moving forward. Um, so this will be a fun one. Okay, so you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V is in Villainy in the Veins, Smith. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N as in Nog from the Mirror Universe, the greatest villain of all. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.